welcome to the Faith Movement Podcast, a platform from where we can share our talks, reflections and discussions with you. The Faith Movement aims to advance understanding of the Catholic faith in the modern world. To find out more about us, visit www.faith.org.uk. This time we will be sharing with you the third in our monthly series of talks on the theme of giving an account of the hope that is in us. This talk was given by Father Louise Ruscello, parish priest of Our Lady of Perpetual Help in Carlisle, on the 11th of March, 2021. The talk is entitled, The Disaster of Sin. Um, good evening all. Uh, thank you very much for uh, clocking in or whatever you do. Um, this evening, um, I'm going to be talking about the subject of well, the title is The Disaster of, of Sin. And so I'm mainly going to be talking about the, the um, origin of, um, of sin. So about original sin. And then a little bit um, at the end, you're, so, and how that has affected us and our world and society. And then uh, a bit about the end, uh, near the end, about personal sin. And then um, our hope in, um, in redemption. So that's that's kind of where where I'm, I'm going to go. I have a few um, uh, things on PowerPoint, mainly for um, uh, to because you know there's some uh, quotations that I want to put up there from um, from a couple of authors from the Catechism of the Catholic Church and some uh, passages uh, from the Bible. So I will be attempting to uh, to share my screen. Um, at at some point, in fact, perhaps we will. Uh, I'll begin that um, now. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So that's the title of the, of the talk, which is um, the the disaster of um, of sin, and um, your know, sin and injustice is one of the things that G.K. Chesterton said is one of the things that. Um, you know, that Christian theology can actually prove by observation. So he says, certain new theologians dispute original sin, which is the only part of Christian theology which can really be proved. By that he meant, and this when he was writing, you know, his, it's in his book, Orthodoxy. What he meant by that is you can just see it. You know, it is evident, empirically evident in the world in which we live, in the society that we um, that we are part of. So he uses this phrase, it's as, as plain as a pike staff. Um, and you know, he's dead right. Sin and injustice exist. Of course they do. We see it. We sense it. We know that we can be part of it. We rail against it. And you're and you're it's you know, many many people will will try to uh, to you know, to to remedy it but that it's there everybody would generally um accept not only do we see that it's there but we sense that there there is something wrong somehow that this state of affairs should not be um we observe in the physical realm our world and the universe and we do not see this kind of injustice. Rather, in the physical universe, we, uh, we observe order and harmony. Things come into existence and after a time they will decay or die. 
But we do not see that as unjust, but that it's the proper order of things. We observe human beings and our acting in the world as something different. We see a capacity to harm and bring about that destruction, not in a proper way of things, but unjustly and recklessly. We also observe our capacity to heal and to seek to put right. I think this is deep down, uh, down within us. You know, in the modern world, among many young people and even sort of very, uh, very young, young people, children even, there is a sense that we human beings can do damage. They will observe that and con concentrate at the moment about the damage that we can do um, to, to our environment. Um, there's a sense of that of, of that damage that we are the source of that damage. It's not you know, in the environment, uh, natural environment itself, but we are the source of that. And there is a real sense that they want to put that right um, by calling to account in a moral or ethical way the manner of life of human beings. So you know, this is a different way. Um, of observing human beings and our effect on the environment than any other thing that we know exists within that environment. So the source of evil, we might, we might say, and the source for good is found within ourselves. We can understand this aspect of ourselves and our relationship with others and with the world. Can we therefore understand sin? Now, the Catechism of the Catholic Church, number 387, as I, as I have it there, um, affirms, of course, that we can understand sin. But notice that it affirms that we can understand sin um, through revelation. And ultimately, we can only understand sin properly and to its depths by reflecting on our relationship with God. And so in the Catechism 387, it says, only the light of divine revelation clarifies the real reality of sin and particularly of the sin committed at mankind's origins. That's talking about original sin, which, we'll, which we will come to. Without the knowledge revelation gives of God, we cannot recognize sin clearly and attempted to explain it as merely a developmental flaw, a psychological weakness, a mistake, or the necessary consequences of an inadequate social structure. It goes on, only in the knowledge of God's plan for man, for human beings, can we grasp that sin is an abuse of the freedom that God gives to created persons so that they are capable of loving him and loving one another. So that's the context. So while we observe, as Chesterton said, that sin, injustice in the world is as plain as a pipe staff, while we sense that the origin of that brokenness, uh, that sin, that injustice, and also the origin of, of the good is within ourselves, um, we cannot fully explain it without the reference to our relationship with God and God's plan for us um, human beings. In order to understand what we observe 
as a destructive flaw in the human being, we have to turn then to our understanding of our relationship with God. We know that God is good, the source of all good. And God is without a shadow of change. We do not hold that there are two equal universal forces, good, evil, light, darkness. No, we hold that there is one origin of all things, God. God created all things good, true and beautiful. For this affirmation, we have the teaching of the church and the tradition of the church. And we also have the striking accounts of creation in the Bible, especially in chapters Genesis, the first two chapters of Genesis, Genesis chapter one and Genesis chapter two. From the Bible, from the teaching and tradition of the church, it is affirmed. God is the creator and origin of all creatures. We know those uh, passages in the Bible, Genesis chapter one, which is God creating in six days, resting on the seventh. Genesis chapter two, God creating and forming the, um, the, the human being and breathing his life into the human being. What we draw from that, what is affirmed from that is that God is the creator, the sole creator and origin of all creatures. There are a number of other near Middle Eastern creation myths, let's say, some of them quite similar um, in some respects to the creation stories that we read in Genesis chapter one and Genesis uh, uh, chapter two. They are as ancient, some of them more ancient. The thing about them is that they do not have God as a single um, uh, creative force. There will be a couple of gods or a number of gods who in conflict will produce creation or in lust will produce uh, creation. But because the Jews had this wonderful insight and idea in religion that there is only one God, then this God is the sole originator of everything. So God is the creator and origin of all creatures. God freely wills to create. It's not from conflict or from lust, but it's a decision of free will. By God's word then, not from conflict or other means, but by God's word, all things came come into being. And because God is the sole source, and their insight into, into the nature of God, one God, and there are no other gods, and this God is good, that means that all that God creates is good, true, and beautiful. So, the question is, where did it all go wrong? In God's creation, there is order, harmony, and development. We see that in Genesis 1. Human beings are unique in the physical realm because we are both physical of the earth. Adam, um, the name Adam means of the earth. And we are spiritual. We're made in the image of God, in his image and likeness, as it says in at the end of chapter one of, um, of Genesis. Made in God's image and likeness. So we are both spiritual and physical that is our uniqueness being made in god's image and likeness 
we have aspects of being the spirit of, of our spiritual being. So we are capable of thinking and willing and loving. We are free. This is what it means to be in the image and likeness of God. That we are free. And like God, we're capable of thinking, willing, we are capable of loving. This is what is different between the human being made in God's image and likeness and everything else in the, in the physical uh, creation that, um, that is brought into existence. So where did it all go wrong? Since we're saying that it's as plain as a pipe staff to use, um, to, uh, to use Chesterton's phrase. Again, the teaching that, and the tradition of the church and the book of Genesis give us an understanding, an insight. Now, Genesis chapter three, and these next few slides have some verses from, from uh, Genesis uh, chapter three. Genesis chapter three is uh, what's often described as the description of the fall. It's a narrative. It's a narrative account, not a kind of catechism or theological work account, but a narrative, a, a story. It's primitive, in its expression. It's of its time, but it's profound in its insight and its message. It affirms that something happened at the beginning of the human race. We could say that Genesis 3 uses figurative language to describe a primeval event. So what is that primeval event? What happened? According to the narrative in Genesis 3, now remember, it's a primitive narrative which tells um, of a deeper insight um, and profound message. OK, so that you're just to keep that in mind. So what do we actually read in Genesis 3? We read this. The man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He asked. Now, as we know the story, we know that this passage is taken from after the event of the eating of the fruit. So Adam and Eve were in harmony with God. Notice that it's a garden that they exist in. So there's order and harmony that they have this habit of walking with God in the cool of the day. So they are at home with God in harmony in their relationship with God and in their relationship with each other. We know that they are naked, so they are in harmony with each other. But what happens is in this garden, they are also subject to order and ultimately to law. And one aspect of that order is that God instructs them not to eat of the fruit of the tree of, um, of good and the knowledge of good and evil. So they are not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, when it uses the word knowledge here, and you know, this is right across the board, it's not particular um, Catholic in interpretation. It is understood, most bibl all biblical scholars would say so, that the word for knowledge as used in the Bible doesn't simply mean knowledge as observation. 
It means knowledge as experience of. So when we read the tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, it's not an, you know, an intellectual a thing of knowing the difference between good and evil, recognizing good and evil. What it's saying is having experienced good and evil. And they are not to eat of that because they are not to experience evil. That's part of the order in which they exist, according to this narrative account, which is a primitive account, but of deep, uh, profound insights. So, as we know, they are tempted by the serpent and they eat. And here is what happens. The man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So now that they have disobeyed, and gone against the order that God created for them, um, they immediately sense a separation in their relationship with God. They are the ones who hide from God. God is the one who seeks them out. Notice verse 9, that the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He asked. We'll come to that later because that's a real uh, verse of hope, but here, initially as we read it, it's um, it's a verse of dread. They are hiding from God as a result of their actions. Reading on verses 10 and 11 of the same chapter, the man replies, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. So now we have fear. I was afraid because I was naked, a sense of vulnerability. So I hid a removal of oneself from God. Who told you that you were naked, he asked. Have you been eating of the tree I forbade you to eat? So God knows of their sin. And he can see the consequences of their sin. And Adam and Eve are experiencing the consequences um, of their sin. Just going to those aspects. So they are afraid. Why are they now afraid of God? Where you know, initially they were walking in the cool of the evening with God. So God has now become a threat to them. There's some kind of strange vulnerability that makes God a threat and indeed others a threat, which was not a threat originally in that relationship. And God has not changed. He has not. Be, he, he himself has not become a threat. But for Adam and Eve now, they perceive God as a threat. Just take and they are afraid. Take that a little bit further. We human beings can often experience God's love and care for us, his gift of order and commandments and beatitudes for us. We can sometimes experience that as restrictive, something that we want to run away from, to break free from. But that is that is the problem within us, not within God, because God has not changed. 
The second thing, I was naked. Now, initially, we might jump in there and think that this is all to do with um, it's all to do with aspects of um, your of, of purity um, or, or of things like that. There's much more than um, simply the aspect of the um, being physically naked and and what how that affects us. Again, the aspect of nakedness is a vulnerability. But we can also say that you're, they're hiding because they are naked, their eyes are open, they've realised that they are naked. What does that mean? You know, why is it that we don't want to be seen by another in that kind of way? Well, there's, you know, okay, this thing of we feel vulnerable. We also might be suspicious of what they might think of what they see. We can only be suspicious of that because I realize that that's the way I look upon the other who is naked. So there's all sorts of aspects of human vulnerability there and suspicion and lack of trust, which comes from the fact that I myself look at the other in that way. And now, Within the human relationship, there is seeing the other as an object instead of being in a relationship with the subject. As a result, we hide. We hide away and therefore relationships are not properly open, integral, honest. Have you been eating from the tree I forbade you to eat? Now, who is God asking? He's asking Adam. And Adam's very reply shows the present status of the relationship between the husband and wife. It's a great reply. It was the woman. So he blames the woman. You know, again, as I said, there is deep insight, human psychological insight in these simple, in these simple words. Somebody is to blame. It's not me. It's her. He blames the woman. Not only the woman, but God himself. It was the woman you put with me. So you gave me her. Ultimately, it must be your fault. Which, again, is deeply human. And that's how we often react when we're faced with um, evil within ourselves or when we observe it around we say why does god do this why does god allow this so we blame others and we blame god and we can relate to adam because the one person he's not blaming is himself she gave me some fruit from the tree and i ate it now the fact that genesis is courageous enough to put in the woman's role here, as perceived by the man, again, is truly deep psychologically. Now, you know, for all the sort of wrestlings that we might have with, um, for example, things like inclusive language, and we'll see that later when I quote from the catechism, that it's your own unreconstructed, your um, exclusive language that's, that's used. But all of those kind of things that we wrestle with in the modern day, as we wrestle with um, with uh, with feminism and and what that means and what it what it doesn't mean, 
surely that also shows that there is a dysfunction in our societal relationships and individual uh, sorry and and personal human relationships where there is an imposition that there is a difference there is something wrong and out of kilter. And it's okay for us to recognize that. In fact, it's right for us to recognize that. Um, it's just that sometimes we, at least, you know, I as a Catholic priest, as a man within the Catholic Church, will of course shy away from and become defensive against the you know, the more um um let's say the, the more powerful um feminist narrative. Um, but to recognize that there is some truth in the out-of-kilter relationship between, between men and women is to recognize part of the in, insight of Genesis chapter 3. And Genesis chapter 3 is certainly not saying that this is the way of things and the proper way of things. What it's saying is, this is the way of things, and it's not the proper way of things. She gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. It's all her fault, not mine. The Lord God then says to the woman, why did you do that? The woman replied, the snake tempted me, and I ate. Now, the snake introducing here and introduced at the, at the beginning of uh, Genesis uh, chapter chapter three. Again, remember, it's a primitive way of telling things, but the things that it's telling uh, are deep psychological human human insights. But it uses, of course, the tools available to the writer at the time. And one of those tools is the image of the snake as Satan, the tempter. What we can say in Catholic theology is that Satan, as one of the created spiritual beings, angels, we, we call them, uh, created by God, in God's image and likeness, as we human beings are, therefore, with mind and will, the capacity to love and true freedom, that uh, you're just as we human beings who have those spiritual capacities made in the image and likeness of God have fallen and chosen against God. So also we understand others of the spiritual realm who do not have uh, uh, bodies or physicality in that in that sense, but others of the spiritual realm, angels, um, also have fallen. And so the snake is introduced as the image of the fallen spiritual being, Satan, who tempts the human being. So that's where the, the snake tempted me and I ate. So those are just a few verses from Genesis uh, chapter three. Um, as I say, a primitive narrative account, but gives profound um, psychological human insights in its message. And what we read is that from the earlier harmony that Adam and Eve had with God, harmony and order, they too are subject to this order, do not eat of the fruit of the tree of life. Under temptation, they choose to eat the first sin. 
Um, and notice then that the first sin, the original sin, is a sin of disobedience, of going against the order that God has imbued in creation, giving us freedom that we may freely choose to live within that order, but that we chose to go against that order and to disobey. The consequences or effects of this moment of disobedience are expressed as a curse in Genesis uh, chapter 3. The Catechism in uh, section 398, paragraph 398, says, in that sin, man, there you go, there's the uh, inclusive language of the Catechism in its original form, in that sin, man preferred himself to God and by that very act scorned him. He chose himself over against, over and against God, against the requirements of his creaturely status, and therefore against his own good. So looking at the consequences or effects of, um, of, of sin, there's a separation from God. We notice that they hide. They feel naked in front of God. They fear God. Yet God is the source of life and fulfillment. So in hiding from God, they're now looking for fulfillment within themselves. It's a futile and frustrating search. Now, the church calls this the lack, the loss of original holiness. The holiness being that harmonious communion with God, which is now lost. We're looking for fulfillment within ourselves or hiding from God. It's a futile and frustra frustrating search. But that's what's happened. We have lost original holiness. There's also a loss of my proper place and order. So they consider themselves to be naked. When I choose to be a law unto myself, I lose my proper order with God. I lose the proper order with God, with the universe, and within myself. My body, my will, what I desire, my mind, how I think, also lose their proper ordering, if you like. Just as I you know, have chosen to be an order unto myself, so now these aspects of who I am become an order unto themselves. There's a disintegrality about my life now. I experience this brokenness within myself. To be, to be good becomes the struggle. To be bad is all too easy. This is called the loss of original justice. So original holiness, that communion with God who is my life source, is lost. I hide. And original justice, that being in proper order with God, myself, others, and the environment, trying to be in order unto myself, this also is lost. And that's the loss of original justice. St. Maximus the Confessor, 
quoted in the Catechism, section 398, says, uh, says you know, this is a great phrase. So the Catechism says, constituting a state of holiness, man was destined to be fully divinized by God in glory. That is, our destiny, our, you know, what we are put on this earth for, was to share God's nature to such an extent that it could be described as divinized, made divine. We use the language of being children of God. So we share in his in in his divine uh, divine nature. We are adopted as children of God. We share his glory. Seduced by the devil, man wanted to be like God. Remember the devil's phrase and the temptation was, uh, God said, "Do not eat of this fruit, because he knows that if you eat of this fruit." You will be like him. So that was a temptation that we wanted to be like God. We wanted to be like God. Notice, God wanted us to be like God. God destined us to be divinized, which is to be like God, to share his glory. God wanted the same. But he wanted us to be like God in harmony and communion. Maximus the Confessor says, but we wanted to be like God without God, before God, and not in accordance with God. That's what that lack, that, that act of disobedience was. Wanting to be like God, but without God, before God, and not in accordance with God. So we lost that state of holiness. And what revelation makes known to us through the Bible, through the teaching and tradition of the church is confirmed by our own experience. Second Vatican Council Gaudium Expes says, for when man looks into his own heart, he finds that he is drawn towards what is wrong and sunk in many evils which cannot come from his good creator. Sin is not simply an act of disobedience as an external law, like going through a red light. And if you don't get caught, well then, and you don't knock anybody down and there's no crash and, and whatever, well, that's okay, you kind of got away with it. It's your it's obedience to, to a law, which if you like is outside. Whereas this disobedience was not to an external law. It was a denial of my proper place in creation. It damages then soul and body and the relationship between soul and body. It therefore leads to death. Death, as we now experience death, was not part of God's original blessing and plan. The original blessing and plan, as the Catechism says in 398, was to be fully divinized by God in glory, sharing in God's nature in that way by God's grace and invitation, by him adopting us as children of God, God who is immortal. This we have lost. So three things that are lost, original holiness, that communion with God, original justice, we've become a law unto ourselves, and that immortality, which was an original blessing. These are the effects within ourselves 
the effects in society. We have you know, the effect of our relationships in society. We experience them and they're expressed there in Genesis 3. Blame, it was the woman what done it. And suspicion, hiding away. Objectification, because, you're, uh, because we're naked. And, and you know, that, that hiding um, from, from the other, the other is now a threat. I experience myself as vulnerable and act to defend myself. And the effects on our relationship with the earth, put on this earth to be stewards of creation, as described in Genesis 2, now our relationship with the earth becomes a toil. Genesis 3 puts it, we, uh, we get the fruits of the earth by the sweat of our brow. We experience it in our modern day that we've become grasping and greedy in our use of the earth, not stewards. It's no wonder that these effects are often described as curses in Genesis 3. They are a curse, but they're not the curse um, as in a sort of your a Harry Potter kind of curse or as in a sort of arbitrary, now God is angry and I'm going to punish you kind of curse. They are, they're curses because it's, um, these, these are the, the natural, if you like, consequences of our choices and our way of acting and living. The Second Vatican Council, Gaudium et Spes, also says, often refusing to acknowledge God as his source, man has also upset the relationship which should link him to his last end. Uh, sorry, can I just put off the... <laughs> sorry about that. <laughs> right, we won't let that happen again. Um, okay, uh, often refusing to acknowledge God as his source, man has also upset the relationship which should link him to his last end. That last end is being divinized of, your, of, of sharing in God's glory. And at the same time, he has broken the right order that should reign within himself, as well as between himself and other men and all creatures. So that sums it all up. The effects, the consequences of this sin, this act of disobedience, upset the relationship with God. It has upset the relationship with what um, our, our destiny. It's broken the right order within myself, in my relationships with other human beings, and also with, uh, with creation and the earth. It is a curse indeed. Now, looking at what, um, your, what Genesis chapter 3 has described um, for us, can we say that it, this is properly a historical event. Genesis 3 uses figurative language to describe a primeval event, I have said, a happening at the dawn of humanity. We see the damage caused by human beings to each other and the environment throughout history. It is not something, this damage, that evolves naturally out of the universe. We see no such destructive disharmony anywhere else in the physical universe. Nor do we see an evil principle at play anywhere else in the physical universe, except within us human beings. 
The only fair conclusion is to recognize that this evil originated in our world through the agency of human beings and from the origins of humanity. So we call it original sin. It had its beginning in human history. Before human beings, before the possibility of a free act chosen by a spiritual being, sin could not exist in the physical universe. So, yes, we would say it, it was a historical event with evident historical um, continuation and implications. Now, how does it continue? Why did it not simply stop with that first sin of disobedience with Adam and Eve? And in what manner does it continue? Well, to say why could it not stop with that first sin is to not to recognise the effect that it had within their very nature as human beings. It continues, sin continues in the world, certainly because every single human being, we are susceptible to the abuse of our free will. We're all given that gift of freedom because we are spiritual as well as physical beings. And so we all have that free will and we're susceptible to abuse it. And we do so. We do sin. We see this and we learn it from others. But there's a further deeper reality, which is more than that sin is learned through bad example and continued from one generation to the next through the bad influence of others prompting one generation to the next to sin, uh, your, uh, to continue that sinning. The first human sin, the act of disobedience, the Adam and Eve event, it damaged the very nature of our first parents. It damaged their relationship with God, their relationship with each other, their relationship with the earth, the relationship, if you like, you're within themselves, their own integrity. All these relationships were damaged. But these are relationships which define us. They are constitutive of our nature. They make us who and what we are. If they're damaged, these relationships, I am damaged. Rather, Adam was damaged. Eve was damaged. Within their very natures, they were damaged. This damage touches what it is to be a human being, body and soul. This damage then is passed on when we receive our physical nature from our parents. Or better perhaps to say that what our first parents lost, that original holiness, union with God, that original justice, the proper order and place in, in God's uh, created uh, your, uh, world. Um, and that immortality, that, you know, that this is what we are created for, to be immortal like God. These things lost by our first parents could not be passed down by them. They had lost them. They have been broken within their own nature. Now, we know when a human being comes into existence, the soul is created directly by God and is good. The parents pass on the physical matter and attributes. This physicality has been damaged. This is the way that we inherit our brokenness. 
It's through generation. Uh, just as an aside, people often sort of paint the Catholic Church in this um, in, in this way, um, you know, absolutely wrongly and, and without cause. Um, but it's often suggested that original sin is is passed on in generation, uh, you know, through human generation, um, because there's something wrong with the with the sexual act. Um, there is there there is not in God's plan anything wrong with the sexual act. Um, in God's plan, it makes human beings through a loving act procreators with God. That God creates the spiritual soul directly at the first moment of existence of the new human being. The the human beings in a loving um, relationship as procreators pass on their physical nature. It's nothing to do with the fact that it is a sexual act. What it's to do with this passing on, this inheriting of original sin, this brokenness, is it's to do with the nature that is passed on, which has been broken, damaged, not completely destroyed, but broken and damaged. So just for clarity, when we use the word original sin, with Adam and Eve, it was a personal sin. It was a free choice of disobedience against God's wishes, God's order, with all of those consequences and effects within them. When we talk about original sin within me and within you and with every other human being, this is not a personal sin. We're using the word sin then, in this phrase, original sin, in referring to me, in a slightly different way than, uh, than describing a sin that I might commit uh, today or tomorrow or, or whenever. The original sin within me is more a brokenness. It's a condition, a state of being, not a personal act. Our parents, my parents, your parents, their parents, and all of those before them were not at fault in passing on this brokenness. It's what they inherited. The first parents, Adam and Eve, were at personal fault. And then the consequences, the brokenness of their nature. This has then been passed on through every generation to every single human being. We're all in this together. But we're using the word sin in that original sin when referring to me as a state of being, a condition, not a personal act. It is not, therefore, a personal guilt fault, but rather it's a fault line. It's a brokenness. The personal sin of Adam and Eve, a bad choice which damaged relationships, damages their own nature. Original sin for them is that a personal sin. It's used as an analogy within me. For for me, it is not a personal act. It is a state of being. It's a condition. It's a brokenness. But we are all touched by it. We're all in this together. This wound, which we carry from the first moment of our existence, is not a personal fault, but it is a wound. Its effects, therefore, the effect of that wound within me 
which we all have, is the effect of that is an inclination towards sin. So that we all have a weakness for sin. The technical word for this is concupiscence. What this means is that it means it means being good is difficult. Living virtuously is difficult for us. It's a struggle. It also means that being bad comes kind of easy. Living with vice is something we can be drawn to. But look deeper. And what it really means is that we all of us have an absolute need for God's grace. Without God's help, we cannot live virtuously. Without God's help, we cannot live. We cannot do it ourselves. We all need God in our lives. But what we have to say is that we are not abandoned. Um, of course not. And you know, we see this also expressed in Genesis, which I'll come to in a, in a second, but this quotation from, uh, from the Catechism. After his fall, that's the, the event of Adam and Eve with the eating of the fruit, the disobedience, man was not abandoned by God. On the contrary, God calls him and in a mysterious way heralds the coming victory over evil and his restoration from this fall. He heralds the coming victory. This is found in Genesis chapter three, immediately that we hear of the fall. Now remember, and I mentioned this earlier, that God goes seeking the human beings who are hiding from him. Genesis chapter three, verse nine, we've already read it. The Lord God called to the man, where are you? What I said earlier, Something put in very simple and primitive uh, way talks of a deep, profound insight. And that deep, prof that profound insight about humanity and God is that God always seeks us out. Where are you? He asks and continues to ask of every human being who's hiding away in the bushes. Where are you? And then later on in that same chapter, uh, chapter three of, of Genesis, when God is talking about the curses, and um, you know, we've talked about what we mean by, uh, by that word, the, the consequences, inevitable con consequences, he talks to the woman. And he says, I shall put enmity between you and the, sorry, he talks to the snake and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman between your offspring and hers. It will bruise your head. The offspring of the woman will bruise your head and you will strike its heel. So there are consequences for the snake. The snake, remember, which is the image of Satan, the tempter. The tempter who, uh, who tempted the woman, who you know, introduced the man to, uh, uh, to, to the fruit, um, and what God says to the tempter, to the snake, is that as the woman will be the instrument of the offspring which will destroy the snake. The church has called this the proto-evangelium, the, the, the first gospel, the gospel before the gospels, because it speaks of such hope. 
I'll put enmity between you and the woman. So there's going to be enmity between the tempter snake who tempts to evil and the woman and between the offspring of the snake and the offspring of the woman. The snake will strike the heel, but the offspring of the woman will strike the head of the snake, which is why we have those statues of Our Lady standing on the globe and often standing on the snake, uh, because you're, we can see that this is, a, you know, this is a prophecy of the role of Mary, um, who is the mother of God, and we know who this offspring is. But it speaks of hope right in the middle of the disaster which Genesis 3 has described. The Catechism says this passage in Genesis is called the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel. It's the first announcement, hidden, but the first announcement of the Messiah and Redeemer, of a battle between the serpent and the woman, and, the and of the final victory of a descendant of hers, whom we know is Jesus Christ. Hope, then, is how we will be finishing. Hope. The most important thing for us to realise is that God has made us for life and joy, for goodness and happiness. This is his original plan, his original blessing for us. Now, we who have fallen to fulfill our potential, to be children of God. We have an absolute need for God, without whose help we cannot be totally fulfilled. In fact, in that, nothing has changed because Adam and Eve had an absolute need for God in order to be fulfilled. We have that absolute need. And with the coming of Christ, we are given the healing that we need. We need healing where Adam and Eve at the beginning needed only fulfillment, if you like. They were moving towards the fulfillment of the blessings that only God could give. We need healing and the fulfillment that only God can give. The victory that Christ won over sin has given us greater blessings than those which sin had taken from us. St. Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Indeed, there are greater blessings because the love of God is shown even more clearly because of our betrayal of God. That love which does not abandon us, but calls out, where are you? And that love which promises right from the beginning a redeemer who will step on the head of the serpent. So with the coming of the Christ, we are given the healing that we need and the fulfillment that, um, that, that we desire because of God's original plan and blessing for us. With the coming of Christ, we will receive the gifts through the church of baptism, which washes away, away original sin, restores our relationship with God. Concupiscence, which is that brokenness within us, that wound within us, remains in us. So we will still find sinning easier than virtue. 
that Christ also gives us through the church, the gospel and the sacraments as our sure help to a full restoration so that we can be healed and fulfilled in our original destiny, our original blessing. We hope you enjoyed the third in our monthly series of talks. Subscribe if you wish to hear more from us, including the next in our series of talks, which will be given by Father Jimmy McMoran, entitled, Who is Jesus of Nazareth? on the 8th of April. If you wish to join us for this live on Zoom, booking is now open on our website, www.faith.org.uk. If you wish to hear our previous talks, read some of our articles and publications, or learn more about the faith movement in general, again, you can visit our website at www.faith.org.uk or like us on Facebook. Thank you and God bless.